This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. They ask me how I feel and if my love is real and how I know I'll make it through. And they, they look at me and frown. They'd like to drive me from this town. They don't want me around because I believe in you. This is Pod Dylan, a show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, now part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about I Believe in You from 1979's Slow Train Coming is author David Haydu. Hi, David. Hi, Rob. How are you? I am doing great. I am really quite honored to have you on the show. As I said to you off air, not only have you written a fantastic book about Bob Dylan, but you also wrote a fantastic book about comic books, which is another deep interest of mine. So rarely has one person managed to corner that much of the market in my personal pop culture brain. So thank you so much for being here. Rob, I'm grateful to be invited. You know, I love what you do, and I love the opportunity to focus on one song in depth for an hour. That's one of the things that struck me about about this series and appealed to me about it. So it's you know it's not superficial, skirting over things we could really dive into it. But I have to say, you know, that I did write a book about the folk world, including Bob Dylan, among mm-hmm. other people. And a book about comics, but hey, I've written about jazz. You know, you got you got to open, expand your mind, and uh, <laughs> read my first book. I will. Well, I'll give when we're done. I'll give you a list of other things that I'm really interested in. If you can write books about those, that would be fantastic. But we'll, we'll get to all that. So, <laughs> so uh, anyway, this yeah, we're here to talk about. As I mentioned, I believe in you from Slow Train Coming. But I have to ask David, how did you become a fan of Bob Dylan in the first place? Well. I inherited my fandom. I was very fortunate to have an older sibling who was a music head, and not just a music enthusiast, but very smart, kind of like an early adapter. Uh, My brother Chuck uh, was and is still nine years older than me. It's a significant gap. Uh, And he, he was a teenager when Dylan's first album came out. Young teenager. So, you know, I'm nine years younger. I'm just a kid. I'm in elementary school. I don't know, fifth, fourth or fifth grade or something like that. And this record's playing in the house. But in the context of other folk records, he's also playing the Kingston Trio and Joan Baez and, you know, the whole the whole body of records of the folk boom. And this one voice was different as clear as we all know <laughs> and uh my older brother was able to ex- explain to me well hey what was what's good about this you know <laughs> explain it to me and i've said in another context that uh if if he had been a, an enthusiast of uh you know elizabethan literature I, I would have ended up as a chaucer scholar you know <laughs> So I just kind of followed followed my brother. He had he had freewheeling all the first albums, and the first record I ever bought with my own money was Self Portrait. Oh, <laughs> what a way to start! Yeah, which was really <laughs> problematic at the time <laughs> because I was a young like rock and roll head and. You know, played in in bands and was you know my all, my friends one of my friends and I got together. We brought our guitars. And we played music. We're playing uh, the Beatles, and at this point, people were starting to gravitate to the to the Stones and and the Who and and some singer songwriters uh, you know, who were becoming the Vogue at, at, in this at this time. And I have self portrait. And so I found myself in the position that my brother was in with me having to explain to my peers what's good about this. And I had a hard time. (laughs) (laughs) I had a hard time figuring it out. Uh, And I look back now, like I think a lot of us do, we look back now and see this, this vexing kind of hodgepodge of a thing that doesn't seem to have a clear focus. It seems to draw from this odd mishmash of 
of sources, we now see that as absolutely elemental to Dylan's identity. Mm-hmm. Part of what made him part of what made him the genius creator uh, that he is. And it now seems perfectly logical. You know, it fits in just right. Uh, but it was it was hard to grasp at this at the time. Uh, so I re- continued to be a fan. Mainly, it helped now to be playing guitar. It helped to have a voice that struggled to stay on pitch. I could do a very bad semblance of Dylan's songs. That's part of the tyranny of of Dylan's songs that uh, they they sound easier to do than they than they are. <laughs> Once brief segue that I have we have to talk about well to talk about my book Positively Fourth Street. I was with uh no this was actually before I was doing that research. I was with Dave Van Romp for research I was doing for an article for a magazine article writing class at, at NYU. First time I met Dave, it's a great story I can tell you. And then uh I had been instructed by Tom Paxton to bring a ice cream and a bottle of Irish whiskey. So he said, bring bring some bring some vanilla ice cream and a bottle of Jameson's and a tell them Pogo sent you. That was his inside name for Tom Paxton. So I did that and he invited me in. He put all the ice cream in a bowl and poured the Jameson on it. Jameson's on it and, and ate it like ice cream soup. And <laughs> anyway, this part of the story that's relevant is that some like mopey singer songwriter came on the radio while we were while we we're in his apartment. I don't know if it, if it was uh, who did "Time in a Bottle." What was his name? Oh, with Jim Croce. Yeah, Jim Croce. Uh, you know, or, or like or somebody you know in that ilk. And uh, and Dave said, "Bobby has a lot to answer for." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I was sort of fit in that category of you know of a guy with a guitar and uh, who, who who thought that it was okay to not sing in a conventional way. Mm-hmm. But we now understand that Dylan was a magnificent. I think he was a great, great singer. Like I say, I think we all know, mm-hmm. of course, that Dylan is a great, great singer as well as a great, great songwriter and a great musician uh, he's, he's all of that he's mind-blowing so anyway so that that's kind of my history with bob uh as a fan i saw the uh saw the band before the flood tour the okay. spectrum oh wow okay uh i saw you know, many many shows since Quite an awful show at the at the Beacon and a local <laughs> life, and then you know some fabulously brilliant ones after that. And the interest in Dylan that that um, Ben Rock played a part in sparking for me while I was an undergraduate at NYU and living in the Village really caught fire when I years later when I decided to write a book about that time. I, I was living. I was living on McDougal Street, 105 McDougal, for listeners who know the village above Ponchito's restaurant uh, with a, you know, a tenement apartment on the fifth floor with a bathroom across the hall. You know, the old gaslight was across the street. A lot of Dylan's old haunts were, you know, versions of them or the original places were still around. And that was the time that Dylan re merged in the village and played Gertie's again with Patty Smith, you know. Mm. Uh and so I had this deep fascination with the village. We're talking what is the date today? The date is I want to say this for a reason. The date today is the twenty sixth. I don't mm-hmm. know when it's air, but listeners can check out the New York Times today on <laughs> look for this day. It'll be online forever. And there's a piece about me and my fascination with the village in today's times uh, it has nothing to do with Bob Dylan, but it kind of traces my certain 
strain of my interest in the village. But you know, you're you're a young people, you're young I'm a young person from New Jersey, suburbs of New Jersey, actually close to the farm country in northwest New Jersey. I have the conception of Greenwich Village as a bohemian ideal, as this hostile for you know you know, free thinking and uh you know uh unconventionality. Of course you know, all the free thinkers are dressed the same way. They all say the same things. and They're utterly conforming to this, the, this really strict, rigid kind of parochial conception of, of individuality and freedom and iconoclasm. It's very, it's very, very structured, uh, formal, conventional, conventionalism in the name of, of unconventionalism. <laughs> anyway, so I, I came in the village then as a, as a, student at NYU and fancy myself as now, you know, across the river, get a joint with a bathroom across the hall. Now I'm a bohemian too, you know, now I'm a villager too. And I started looking into the, the history of the village folk scene through the lens of this romanticized idea of what the village was Particularly, what it was in the '60s when Dylan was at the at the center of the of the folk boom in the early 1960s. So that many years of research, interviewing village folkies and musicians and club owners and others involved in the folk scene at the time when Dylan moved into town as a young person, <laughs> found his voice, found his identity, and you know, made his his name as a major creative force in American cultural history. <laughs> it, it was a marvelous book. I mean, I've read it a few times actually, uh, and I said it really is as evocative as I could imagine, not having lived through it uh, myself. the The people that you interviewed, if we talk about the book, uh, for the people that you interviewed, did they have a general? I mean, I, you know, everybody's different, I guess, but do they have a sort of general view of? Bob, as he's going on, do they still look at it? Do they still look at him as like, well, he was, you know, one of ours that went on to something, or uh, some of them are a little like, oh, okay, that you guy, know, you know? I interviewed a couple hundred people. So I interviewed a lot of people. My focus was not just Bob, it was Dylan, that time and place. Right. And various people who, you know, occupied that. Perinia and stuff well, like that. Joan Baez, her sister Mimi Baez. Her and her her husband uh, Richard Farina. So uh, through the these the stories of these four people and their interactions and their relationships, I looked at the kind of the the, the folk world and its relationship to the larger culture. So I, the, because I was interviewing people who were there before Bob or there with Bob, and I you know I had heard very different. I, I encountered different points of view about him and a variety of differing points of view. And because some people sort of uh, never, well, I was going to say some people never reached his level of, of fame or achievement, but who did, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> who did? Who did? You know, some of the testimony I had to take as likely fueled with a bit of envy. But I interviewed Victor Maymudis, who was his closest confidant, Sally Grossman, who was a you know, wife of, of Albert Grossman. Is, she's, you know, she's on the Dylan. On the cover, yeah. Al Aronowitz, who introduced him to the Beatles. Barry Feinstein, who took you know, the album cover photos and was working on a, on a book with, with Dylan at one point. Baez and her sister, Carolyn Hester, who was, as we know, Brought in Bob to play in her on hit what was among his first recordings. Izzy Young, one of his mentors, uh, ran the folklore center on McDougal Street. Eric von Schmidt and blah 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 blah. So I had you know I had a lot of a lot of input uh, on on Dylan. No one no one saw him as anything less than a unique. And, and great creative artists. Mm -hmm. There would there would snipe at, at you know, minor things like oh you know he he, he stole that <laughs> chorus from you know, right. or he really wasn't much of a guitar player in those days. Well, you know 
he didn't pretend to be Segovia, and he's working in the folk tradition and the blues tradition where every, everybody draw drew freely from previous works. That's the tradition. But I got a, a very lucky to have a lot of input that then I tried to make some sense of in, in my book. And I didn't interview Dylan himself. He didn't. I kept requesting interviews, and I, I, I kept being told that he was interested in, uh, but didn't have the time. He didn't have the time. Mm. We never had the time. But I did arrange to have access at the time. It was unique access. Nobody else had seen this material. The transcripts to the original interviews that Robert Shelton had done for No Direct in, Direction Holds or in repository in, in two locations, a university in the UK and the Experience Music Project, which in those days was not yet open, was a, was a, was a rented area and a warehouse that Paul Allen was planning to at the time when Paul Allen was still building what what he was envisioning at the time as a kind of a research center museum. So he he had acquired some research materials, including a big chunk of these transcriptions of the interviews Shelton had done and one of Dylan's guitars. So I I was able to, you know, study all that material and photocopy it. And they were still organizing the museum. And at one point there was a guitar case. I said, what's that guitar? Oh, that's one of Dylan's guitars that he was playing in the village. We think it's a guitar he was playing in the photo of his, when he was first reviewed by Shelton at Gertie's Folk City for the New York Times. Want to see it? So this curator opened it up and showed it. He said, do you want to play it? I said, (laughs) Sure, you're really going to let me? <laughs> I have oils and maybe I'll drool because I was drooling over everything I saw. There was a lot of drooling, figuratively or literally. It's okay if I drool on this guitar. So I have those. I was, actually, I pulled some of them thinking that they might be relevant to our discussion. Of, uh, of I believe in you if we, if we ever get to that. <laughs> Well, that, that's a good segue, David. That's okay. a good segue. for for any. But just I will just mention for anyone who hasn't read Positively Fourth Street, absolutely go read it. It belongs on any Dylan fan's bookshelf. I have a copy sitting to my left here as a, as I'm recording this. It's an absolutely terrific book, and it uh, as as David just said, it's not just about Bob. It's about that whole time. And I said it to me. It really takes you there for those of us that didn't get to live through it. So okay. Let's let's talk about it. I believe in you. So why did you want to talk about this one? It's one of my favorite Dylan songs. It's not easy to put my finger on why, but we we still have uh, half an hour. But (laughs) one of the reasons I responded to respond, continue to respond to it, and and still play it often is the is the, the the clarity of its expression and its palpable urge to communicate that informs the composition itself, the language, and the performance. To me, the song, and it's not unique among Dylan's canon, your body of work for this, but it's an especially potent example of Dylan entering into the process of writing, performing with something he wanted to say, you know, he really wanted to get make a point, makes, he had something in his heart, something in his heart and, and something on his mind that he wanted to share. Like you get the impression he would, this was a song he would, he wanted to stop people on the street and shake their shoulders and say, listen, I got to tell you something, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so after the series of, you know, the series of records that preceded it, there's the self-portrait, there's that collection, there's that Dylan collection of mm-hmm. covers that Columbia put out with the Milton Glaser cover. And there's New Morning, which, of course, is, is great. Then uh, then there's Before the Flood and Planet Waves. Do I have the chronology correct? Yes, basically, yes. Basically, okay. You know, there's not a, there's not a lot of clarity or a strong sense of purpose in forming a lot, a lot of that. You know, I, I saw the band, Dylan band show. It's like, what is he doing? It's, it's just really sounded like he's thinking about, 
you know, the check coming. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure I'll get some hate, you know, letters for that. But that's the way I heard those performances and some of that work. And, and, and that from that, broadly speaking, well, not everything, but broadly speaking, that time. So here's, here's an album where he really has something to say. And I Believe in You is just a, compositionally, it's absolutely a gem. You know, he said at various points that he admired the, the Tin, Pan, Pan, Tin Pan Alley song, songwriters. At other points, he derided the Tin Pan Alley songwriters, mm-hmm. you know, and snorted about them. He talked, he it clearly admired, was interested in song craft, if only as a starting point to reject everything that, that, that traditional craft represented. But here he's applying this sense of craft. It's a beautifully structured song. And and it it builds gorgeously uh, musically and melodically, and has and says something clear and strong. Now it could be taken to multiple ways, of course, but that's part of its power. Is he singing to to Jesus? Is it a song of religious belief? Who is he believing in? Or is he believing you know a lover or? A loved one or you know some a mentor someone else well, you know the power of of much great art is that it's that it leaves room for interpretation that you you can you can bring yourself to it and and find personal meaning in it and that the work will accommodate multiple interpretations this work will accommodate multiple interpretations but I think the evidence is, makes clear that this is intended as a song of religious belief about religious belief. Why? Well, I mean, if we look at the at the context of this, so it's slow train running and then saved, and then shot of love, which is saved is is slow train run coming. So to, I said running. I meant to say coming. <laughs> so train coming uh, and saved. Are, you know, most are songs mostly about faith. Saved. It, even more so, this slow train coming, and and then shot of love is a is a mixture of you know of, of secular and, and more sacred songs. But look at the context. There's like, and we could see in in the trouble no more the bootleg series. But look, look at what he's singing in those shows. He's singing the songs from this period. So he's the top of the set is you. It's usually slow. Uh, got to serve somebody, and then I believe in you. Often, by, I believe in you. The second song in the set, or way high up in the set, and then when he returns, uh, rise again, cover down, pray through. Uh, yonder comes sin in the garden. Jesus is the one in the garden, which he would do this monologue about his who his hero was. I'm sure all the listeners know that. You know, he'd say, "I don't know who your hero is." Maybe it's Michael Jackson. Maybe I'm not going to do a Dylan impression. I will spare you. Maybe <laughs> it's, maybe it's Bruce Springsteen. I don't know nothing about none of them or something like that. Uh, this is about my hero, and then he sings in the garden, which is which is clearly derived from the New Testament. It's a, clearly about uh, Jesus of Nazareth. So in this context, we see all these songs about inquiries into the, into faith and into belief and into the sacred, into the divine. And in many of the cases, in the particular manifestation of particular strain of religious thought, Christianity, uh, evangelical Christianity. And he, he said at one, I'm not, I'm, by the way, I'm saying all this not in the vein of proselytizing. I'm not an evangelical myself. I'm, you know, I'm not using all this to, you know, for, uh, you know, for religious purposes, myself, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the evidence more in a scholarly way. Mm-hmm. He t- at one point he did an interview with Robert Hilburn, and Robert Hilburn asked him, "Is this about relig- Is this about Jesus or what?" <laughs> and he said, "I did begin telling people, a few people, after a couple months, and a lot of them got angry with me. So he he did start telling people, yeah, that's about Jesus, and and they got angry with." One of the aspects that I've noticed about the, the Born Again material, and, and I certainly love it. I love that it's some of his best music, certainly. But one mm. of the things I've noticed about it is there is a lot of, in this song particularly, and then in other, you know, it's repeated throughout other songs all the way through even to like the Shot of Love period. There's a lot of self-pity. 
There's a mm-hmm. lot of, oh, poor me, I'm picked on. I mean, he talks about they want to drive me from this town. They show me to the door. It's a lot of like people are being mean to me because I'm now, you know, uh, a, a born again Christian. And, you know, generally I find that that feeling of self-pity is not prevalent in most of his songs. In fact, I can think of like one song where he does kind of trade in that is like Ballad in Plain D, which is like, oh, these girls are being mean to me. And that's like one of my least favorite songs of his. And I've noticed, you know, through this period, there is a lot of that. And and to me, this is like the first song that we're we're hearing from this cycle that has that. And it doesn't keep me from liking the song. I do still love the song, but there is a part of it that it's like, well, geez, this conversion was relatively recent. Like were that many people, you know, in his personal life, kicking him around. Uh, and so that's, that, that's an aspect to the song that, you know, always just puts me at a certain distance. Yeah. I mean, that's a very good question. It gets to a, a, one of the ways in which I think this song and some of the other songs from this period stand out and are different from a lot of D- uh, Dylan's songs over the, over the course of his career. So if, if we read it as purely as a personal statement, as purely as autobiographical, it's awfully self-pitying. And it, you know, we'd have to ask, well, you know, was he, was he really abused so terribly for announcing that he's a born again Christian? And the, the answer would be, well, probably not. Now I, I did hear, I have heard over the years from some musicians who went to see him backstage at shows during this time and expecting to, you know, have a drink or a smoke with Bob and were greeted with comments like, Oh, so great to see you come back with the band, come and pray with the band after the show. And they were surprised Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they were disappointed Mm -hmm. in that Bob and they, and they expressed that disappointment. But, I hear the song differently. <laughs> it's like so, I've never heard it as a as a autobiographical song, a song about him, his feelings and his yeah, his feelings, yes, and belief in Jesus, yes. But I've always heard it as a kind of historical narrative and as a character song. Hmm. So, not for for the beginning. When I, so when I hear this song. I'm hearing him speaking and singing in the voice of an early Christian. So to me, he's conjuring this world of early Christianity where this, you know, radical figure, Jesus was a radical figure, uh, had followers who were ostracized and driven from the town, you know, mm. the, the scene he's describing describes the way that early Christians were treated by and large you know so that's that's how i hear it like what it must have been like for somebody to believe in that person then this you know this radical figure walking among us so the thing you know when we singer songwriters turned songs into personal expression and made american popular song an autobiographical form so when we hear a song from a you know post mid century American singer songwriter, we tend to take it as autobiographical. When the word when the singer sings an I, we tend to think of it as a personal expression. But it's not always, and it certainly doesn't have to be. We don't take any of Randy Newman's songs, you know, as <laughs> right? sure, as, per- yeah, of course. Right? as personal uh, expression. There's a period when. Uh, James Taylor went through a phase of writing character songs and story songs. A lot of Elvis Costello's songs are story songs. And I hear this, this work as kind of historical. Uh, and in this particular thing as, as a character song, I mean, if it were you know, purely uh, an expression of him feeling sorry for himself, I wouldn't like it at all. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, for the same reason, I don't much like the early. This is a weird comparison to bring in, perhaps, but like Neil Diamond. If you've ever listened to his, his very early songs, like "Solitary Man," he's sol- he's alone because no young woman would treat him right, or, or <laughs> Shiloh, or he has an imaginary friend because it's the only person who will play with him. You know, 
And then there, there are songwriters from the Tin Pan Alley tradition who teetered into self-pity too. The, like Lorenz Hart wrote a song called This Funny World. I don't know if, if, you, if, you, if you know, This Funny World will laugh at the things you're, you strive for, make fun of the things you're alive for. There's no pity for you. Holy, holy cow, you know. But this, it's not, I, I, I hear this is different. That's really interesting. I've, I have never, I've lived with this song for 30 years and I've never thought of it that way, but that's, that's a really interesting way of approaching. Cause certainly some of the other songs from this period are set in that kind of historical setting. It, you know, it may not be obvious. It's not like right. he's giving you a date or something, but I feel like Precious Angel is a little bit like that too. So that's really, that's really interesting. Yeah. I've never thought of it that way. The songs kind of conjure the world of the gospels. So I've always thought of this as being placed in that world. So, you know, that I read it differently. The, the performance on the record specifically, the slow train one, um, is terrific. I mean, it's, he sounds very vulnerable more than someone like when he does the, when he does the refrains and he's singing, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry to try to imitate him, yeah. but I love that kind of like wailing that he does. And it was something I noticed that when he, when he did it live and we'll talk about the, other versions that he's yeah. done he drops that he doesn't do the the oh thing which to right. me is makes it very distinctive the version that we hear on the record right there's this, this kind of like a, a bridge section is it's not like as in the case with a lot of dylan songs there, there aren't formal sections in the tin finale manner but there's a bridge like section and of course like i said it builds uh, oh that thing that you're talking about yeah builds and builds and builds in a way that really draws from you know the standards, and he lets his voice crack. That's what you were describing. It yeah, yeah, crack. it's so powerful. Do you remember, or do you have you seen the video of him doing it on Saturday Night Live? Yes, I, that's something I definitely wanted to mention on the on the show because yeah, it's one did. of the three songs he did, did on his 1979 appearance on the fifth season of Saturday Night Live. Yeah, seventy nine, just a few months after this was recorded. This is recorded in May. He's on SNL in October. He does three songs. The first one he does is I Believe in You. It's, well, there's the second. It was the second. second, first, was the second one? He does Gotta Serve Somebody First. And they broke it up. And he does three separate numbers, which is, first of all, generally music acts don't do three numbers on SNL, but he's Bob Dylan. Uh, I mean, they even mention him in the opening sketch, the cold open. They mention that everybody's making a big deal. Bob Dylan is there. So it was a big deal. Right. And so he does Gotta Serve Somebody. Then he comes back mid-show to do I Believe in You. And then he comes back one more time to do uh, When You're Gonna Wake Up. Of the three, this, the performance of I Believe in You, is my favorite of the three. He seems to me a little bored on Gotta Serve Somebody. It's it's good, but it's, uh -huh. you know, but this, the one on, uh, that he does in SNL is, is really magnetic. I agree. For a long time, this was my go-to song when I would encounter people who, who would say, oh, Bob, oh, my God, he can't sing. Oh, my God, he can't sing. I would sit them down and I'd play I Believe in You. You know, my wife is a jazz singer, Karen Overland, different last name. And this, when we were dating, you know, I played this for her. Oh, Bob, how could you listen? I said, listen to this, you know. <laughs> and her jaw dropped. It's just, it's just by any, well, not by any standard, by certain standards, it's you know, it doesn't quite meet certain standards, but it's so expressive and impassioned mm -hmm. and, and effective, really. That, but you're right. But he, but I guess he didn't. After a time, he 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 didn't press himself to go so far. You know, in the in the in the uh, vocally with it. But he, you know, he took some he took some crap for. Uh, for doing this music. I have another. Mm -hmm. Oh, I pulled out the biograph notes. So he talks about this period in the biograph notes and how the saved was, a, didn't was a bad seller. And the, it was, the response was tepid at best to save. And he said, people were always looking for some excuse to write me off. And this was as good as any, I can't say if being non-commercial is a put down or a compliment, <laughs> but so train coming. I keep saying running, don't I? So so train coming was a big hit. It yeah, was, it was huge. Won the he won a Grammy for "Got to Serve Somebody." It was a, first, yeah, it was a big first hit. Grammy, first Grammy, and it went platinum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's a big hit. So maybe he just thought that okay, I've all right. I'll keep doing this gospel stuff. I'll keep going platinum. 
Though I doubt that he thought that way. But he definitely <laughs> was disappointed when when Saved was uh, was not so successful. But what else do you want to talk about? <laughs> well, one other thing about the song that I, I found interesting is in yeah. the context of his religious conversion is when you're singing to somebody, I mean, singing to, I mean, first, again, the, if you were buying, slow, I mean, by the time I came to Slow Train Coming, it was a 20, 15 year old record. Uh-huh. So I already knew, oh, this was one of the born again records and I knew what I was getting. Right. But someone buying it off the shelf, you know, right at the time, uh, did you do that? Did you buy it? When it oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought it. Oh, the new Dylan album. Get it that day. What is okay. this? What now? The- did you were you aware of what was yeah. what was coming? Yeah, there was. No talk, there was already by, by seventy nine. I was already writing for Rolling Stone. It's it was twenty some three twenty two twenty three something like that. So I'm starting to write for Rolling Stone. Writing for the Village Voice. I had interviewed. You know, you know, I was going to the punk club. So, I, you know, I was kind of pl- sort of quasi almost plugged in to rock, to the music writing community. Fringe, you know, I was a fringe person of then, but kind of plugged in. And yeah, and there was talk that Dylan's doing like this, what was people were calling a Jesus album. You know, slightly, you know, it has a pejorative. Yeah. Coloration. So I was expecting it. Uh, and Slow Train coming seems like, oh, well, this is the, that, but it has a great muscle shoal sound and the best production values that I had ever heard in a Dylan record. Maybe the, they may be the best production. Well, Infidel sounds pretty good too. But, it, but at this point, it was the best sounding Dylan record that I had, that I could think of. And, you know, got to serve somebody who was also catchy. It had a great hook. And but and then but I believe in you. Just he's on a work of a different kind that that takes that religion that oh passion for the the mysteries of the of the divine and the you know to a deeper level in a way that is is palpably voracious. You know, true, true, meaningful to him. Mm. And I really respond to that in music by anybody when it doesn't sound, doesn't sound cynical, doesn't sound patronizing. Doesn't he said? I don't know if non-commercial is a compliment or an insult. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound like it's done cynically for for for, for sales. I I like that. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I, I I'll say this publicly. I just can't tolerate Billy Joel. I just can't. I, I, I don't. I, I'm comfortable, say, you know, saying this on the record. I, I, <laughs> every song sounds to me like a like a ploy for for commercial success. Oh, I'll do this. Maybe this. Maybe I'll have a hit with this. Now, Dylan could certainly do that, <laughs> you know, and well, and often in combination with you know great creative expression and and stretches the audience with a hit, you know, the way that the, the Beatles also did. I mean, like a Rolling Stone was a pop hit, was a top 10 hit. And so people listening to it, and it's, the, it's expanding the audience's uh, palette, you know, and expanding the terms on the, by which we could even consider what it meant to be a pop hit. So he could, he could do that, but it wasn't cynical. And this just sounds like, it sounds like it sounds like what it's about. It has a meta quality, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, well, about, it's about believing in something, and it sounds like that. Well, that that hits on something I did want to ask you about because I'm curious. The song, I mean, I said the first two songs. If if you didn't know that this record was about that, you could listen to the first two songs, and you're like, "Well, there's a lot of religious talk in these first two songs." Got to serve somebody, and precious angel. But his his songs always have a lot of religious talk, so it's okay. But this one it hit you square in the eye, like you square in the eye. Like, okay, th- this is a song of faith. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, you could interpret it to be about a, a person or, uh, you know, something else, but really it's a song about faith. And it, it, to me, there's like, okay, there's no other way to, you can't avoid it. But I am curious about when you're, you, he's singing to him, capital H him. 
which it's it's kind of like a self-evident statement to say i believe in you well you're talking to the you so i would assume you believe in him because you're speaking to you know what i mean it's like well yeah you're speaking to me i it's curious that he doesn't sing i believe in him their way he's talking to his audience and saying this is how much i believe it's kind of this dialogue between him and his lord well sure so we're we're witness to a prayer so mm-hmm. it's 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 an it's a form of very intimate expression and we're witness to it and that is another reason that that it's it's so powerful it's him revealing maybe convincing himself maybe convincing the uh the object of the of the prayer that, that of his belief you know and this like who that's really interesting about about this const- this rhetorical construction of I believe in you and how the object of it can be used creatively. So, you know, there, there's, there are other examples of, of, it's very strange about this song title that there are so, there there are a handful of other songs called I believe in you that are among the best songs that those people ever did. (laughs) You know, the Don Williams song, Don was a country, yeah, the country singer. He then had a terrific song called I, I Believe in You. Frank Lesser, uh, from How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, <laughs> has a song called I Believe in You. Won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a terrific you know, musical and very advanced and serious as well as entertaining. And in the musical, it's a it's about an ad man, businessman, young on the make businessman. It's kind of psyching himself up and is singing to himself in the mirror of a restroom. So who does he, he believe, who does he believe in? He believes in himself and he's singing to himself and singing to his own reflection. Neil Young, I believe in you from after the gold rush that, that Linda Ronstadt sang beautifully, memorably. So this is odd. There's something about that, idea of expressing your belief directly to someone that brings out something great in songwriters. Another another thing we didn't talk about is the importance of belief to Dylan, you know, and how it's manifested itself in various points. And I'm not talking about the religious imagery in the songs. Other people have talked about that and, and with God on our side, which is not really and you know, many other examples where he's he's clearly steeped in the Talmud and not really the Talmud, the Torah, not really no, the Talmud later, but you know, the Torah, the old Testament, AKA and, and the gospels of the what Christians call it. Yeah. The gospels of the new Testament. I'm getting tongue twisted a little mm-hmm. bit. I want to, I just want to make sure to, to characterize everything cor- correctly. Uh, but belief more broadly has like served bubbled up as something important to him. So I believe in you, which is another of my favorite Dylan songs. If I didn't choose this, I might have chosen I believe in you. No, I mean I don't believe you. I, I don't. Might, I, don't yeah. might, I might have talked about I don't believe you, which is a great song from '64. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about belief, and we we know. I hope I, I get this right from my memory. There's a he's being heckled. Is it? I guess it's in Manchester. He's with the with with the Hawks with the band and they're yeah Judas yeah yeah Judas and he says I don't believe you <laughs> you're a liar you're a liar I don't believe you it's like the worst insult that he could throw back is I don't believe you 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 don't you don't earn my belief you don't warrant my belief and, uh, it's, so it's kind of belief is a thread that's a important to him and it's there are probably other manifestations of it but those are the the three that i that come to my mind right i mentioned earlier he's performed this song live 259 times as recently as 2009 uh so not some of the uh, i've got to serve somebody obviously he's been playing it on he played it on a recent tour and he's been you know that's been getting recent outings generally the slow train coming songs haven't gotten a whole lot of live play past that was born again years, if we want to, you know, define them so so, you know, uh-huh. strictly. Uh, but this one has 
you know, been played more than most of the other. God is for somebody's the exception, but this one's been played a little more. And there are a bunch of live versions that you can find online. And I mentioned he drops the oh part when he does the refrain. He just sings it sort of straight. There's one version from 2004 I heard, but uh, he has um, harmonica breaks, which is actually really quite beautiful. I like the harmonica in it. Um, so it's a song that, you know, despite what people would assume, he's not into this anymore. He's still singing it. You know, as late as 2009, he's still singing the song because it um, can accommodate multiple meanings. So right. he doesn't have to think. He doesn't have to think of it in Judeo-Christian terms, right? Anymore, and it still, it still is, retains its power. Right. I, I'm not familiar with the later versions. Had, has he has he changed it much in the Dylan? It, the, the lyrically, it's the same. It's the same song. Um, but but yeah, it, it said it. It's it's interesting to hear him sing it. Just take. The vocal take is just very different in the live versions. I've not, I've never heard, despite this big box set they put up, the Trouble No More box set, there is no alternate takes of this song. I assume that they exist. I've never heard them. So I don't know if the, the vocal is very different from other versions that he was doing when he recorded it. Um, but, but no discussion of the song is complete without mentioning the fact that it was going to be the song that Sinead O'Connor was going to sing. Yeah. At the 30th anniversary concert, yeah. and yeah. because of a bunch of uh, gimbuses at that show, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of you, guy, three seats down from me, who was booing at the time. Well, she yeah. never got to sing it. I was there for that. <laughs> yeah, uh, me too. It was. Uh, I'm sure you were a lot closer to the stage than I was, but I was there as well. I wrote about it. I reviewed it for the Hollywood Reporter. I was like a, a young uh, music critic for the Hollywood Reporter then, and, and as as everybody now knows. Uh, that's what she was planning to do. And we hear a little piano introduction. Yep. And it's it came not that long after she had been on SNL. Yeah, the week Bob after. Marley. It was the yeah, week, week after. after. Yeah. She did, she did Bob Marley's War. Yep. yep. And, and then tore up a photo of the, of the Pope. And, you know, makes this song, choice of a song so fascinating. It's beautiful. You can hear it. They When they re-released the 30th anniversary concert, a couple of years ago, the deluxe edition in 2014, there's the afternoon rehearsal of her doing it included and you can hear it. And then there's another live version from the Albert Hall that mm -hmm. she did in 99. And they're beautiful. They're, and, you know, I mean, and talk about somebody who took brick bats for right. uh, the stuff that she said. This I, I could see why th this song would be so resonant to her. And it is just such a continual crime that uh, and the you know we're drowning in irony that she did not get to sing it on stage when you know, and I it think would have been fantastic because it's a song of christian belief and she has just come under attack for criticizing the pope it's, it seems to me that she was drawing a distinction between the pope and roman catholicism and and christian belief on other terms yep you know yep. right to say well i'm not against you know christian belief and i'll show you i'm going to sing this song about that and sing it from my heart that's what she was planning to do it yep. would have been so powerful and it would have been amazing i got that that version on the rehearsals i mean it's just tear your heart out it's fantastic yeah. it is it's the idea that a lot of people can't tolerate the idea that oh, i still have faith in the the religion, but I don't like the organized man-made structure that's been built around it. And people can't, I don't want to hear that. So let's boo her. And again, it's just a great crime, but luckily he said that afternoon rehearsal version does exist and you can hear it. And she, she kills it. She absolutely well, just crushes it. There are also political dimensions to it. When you're talking about the UK and the yeah, divisions yeah. between the Protestant strain of Christianity and the Roman Catholic strain of Christianity, they have, they have multiple, you know, deep levels of deep dimensions of political meaning there and social, social and political meaning. Yeah. So, I, as yeah, as much was, as, as much as Bob took it in the teeth, I think when he started doing the, you know, religious only concerts, mm -hmm. uh, Sinead really took, it, you know, I mean, like she really, really took it for, for that stance. And I think time has proven her to be absolutely correct. And so uh, again, anyone that's a fan of the song, go find that version. That yeah, Sinead does because it's just I, fantastic. I'm remembering this correctly. I haven't watched it in a long time, but there is, but there's film footage of what we saw that day, and the film footage is even more powerful than my memory of it because we could see her close up, just 
stand, and I haven't watched it in a while, but my memory of it is that she's just standing rigidly, unmoved in the center of the stage while she's being heckled, just unmoved, just standing there defiantly, just, you know, but taking it with not with a, with a, like, oh, woe is me kind of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, with a steely determination, you know, and then turns it, flips it around and does with Marley's war, yeah. you know, just with combative, with a, with a combative determination. Absolutely. So that is, I believe in you. It is, it's, it's a fantastic song. Um, and so David, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's a real honor to get to talk to you. And, and so thank you so much for, for, for being on the show and discussing this great tune with me. Oh, Rob, thank you so much for having me. This was great. And I hope to talk to you again someday. Absolutely. So I have one uh, standard exit question that I have for all my guests. That I have to ask and you, especially I really want to find out what you think about this. And so the, the question is always, if there is any Bob Dylan recording session that you could have sat in on, just you're not you're not part of it, you're not involved in it, you're just sitting watching it happen. What would that be? It could be an album, it could be theme time radio hour, it could have been the audio version of the philosophy of modern song or whatever. But if there's anything that you could have just sat in the corner to watch get created in front of you, what would that what would that be? Oh well, this is a cornball obvious answer. I'm sorry, but it'd have to be Highway sixty one. You know. I, that's why is that cornball? Why, why is uh, that? Well, it's it's just breaking new ground. It's like if you could watch if you could watch someone you know land discover a new continent, you know, <laughs> you know land on the moon. You know, it's 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 just a group of young creative uh, young something isn't important, but a bunch of creative people in the process of invention and reinvention you know experimenting well, let's try this let's try that it's like, whoa. and you know it's uh that i think yeah that's my answer i'd be interested in other sessions that's my that's that's my answer all right I, most people have not said that to this point so it's, it's really? not as, yeah what do most people say what about the people there is no consensus answer but highway 61 doesn't come up that much to be honest some people blonde have said, blonde. a lot of people say blonde on blonde some people say a lot of people have said the basement tapes because you get more oh, bang for your buck because you get like four months of sessions to sit through a lot of people say the willberries because then you get a beetle you know i mean so everybody's got their own you know their own version of it. So, well, no, that's imagine imagine being in the room to watch them do all ten takes of like a Rolling Stone and figuring out, oh my God, we're changing popular music right. with right for this right. moment. <laughs> so, that's what I want to watch. <laughs> great. Well, again, uh, David, thank you so much. I'm really honored to have you on the show, and uh, I love your book. I love I love both of your books. I I will I will endeavor to read the jazz book. You just expand my horizons a little, as you say. Uh, so thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And of course, uh, everybody, uh, you can find all the back episodes of this show over on fmpods.com. New address fmpods.com. We're over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan, and you can find the show on any podcatcher of your choice. So. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Once again, here's Bob Dylan. <laughs>